James chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. The chapter does split into two sections, so we'll read down to the end of verse 12, and then we'll deal with the rest of the next Bible class. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now that will do for our reading. And as I've said, we're going to start the study of James. It is five chapters. It's intensely practical ministry from James and is a bit of a contrast from John's writings. Wallace and I, each time spoken in John, have discussed this, that John's epistles are quite difficult um, to section up in the way that some of the other epistles you can do and to see different uh, sections dealt with in very uh, clear com- um, compartments. With John, it's a spiral, cyclical sort of epistle. James is very different. James deals with practical issues and he does in chunk-sized bits that you can deal with and then move on. So we're going to do that um, this evening and see that as he begins his epistle, James is dealing with perhaps the biggest issue that you and I face as Christians and perhaps even more so as young Christians. And it's the idea of trial and temptation. So what you have in the first chapter is this subject introduced and he's going to speak first of all about trials and temptations and define what he means by both of these words. So you will have the first section which we've read dealing with trials and then from verse 12 down he begins to deal with temptations and he'll he'll show you the difference between the two and there's a significant difference between the two. And then as he goes on in his epistle he's going to show us various trials of our faith. For example, in chapter 2, he will speak about the idea of discrimination, and particularly social discrimination on wealth and status, and he'll deal with that practical issue of how we treat people, and do we treat people differently because they're rich or poor, or because they've got some social status or not, and what does that look like when someone comes into a local assembly? How are they treated, and how are they received? And he shows in chapter 2 that that is actually a demonstration of where we are spiritually, by how we treat people. And he's going to look at various things like that. For example, a lot of the epistle, um, he speaks about the use of the tongue and our language and our conversation, which again is a big indicator of where we are spiritually, how we speak to each other, how we speak about each other, and these sorts of things. So it's very practical and I hope it will be a challenge. It should be a challenge to all of us in the room. So who then is James? Well, there are several men in the New Testament who bear the name of James. And James is unlikely to have been 
the brother of John that you read about as the disciple of Jesus. John and James, well, we know that John lived a long life. We've been reading his writings, but James, his brother, lived a very short life. He apparently, according to the historians, was martyred in AD 44, not that long after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This James is most likely the half-brother of Jesus who didn't become a Christian until after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you read about him, for example, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, and you may not realize that Jesus, when he was growing up in that family unit in Nazareth, had what we would call half-brothers and half-sisters. That is, they shared the same mother, um, but they did not obviously share the same father because the Lord Jesus Christ was born of Mary the Virgin. But then Mary and Joseph went on to have children after Jesus was born. So Jesus was the oldest child in that family unit, and one of his brothers, half-brother if you like, was James. And it would appear that that is the James who writes this epistle. He did become, you read about him in the book of the Acts, he did become the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the years following the day of Pentecost and also bore the title of James the Righteous or James the Just in church history because of his well-known holiness of life. Now it's interesting that if that be so, and it appears that it is so, that he begins this epistle in a very strange way. Just as Jude begins his epistle in a similar way, and Jude also would have the same relationship to the Lord Jesus as James. So James and his brother Jude open the letter by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they claim the relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, not on the basis of the natural ties, but rather in their spiritual relationship. They are a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And that's how they describe themselves. They don't pull natural rank, if you like, in the spiritual sphere. So they don't say, for example, I am James. I lived in the same house as Jesus. I know I'm better than any of you. And therefore, that gives me some sort of authority amongst you. It doesn't even mention that. Right throughout the epistle, it isn't relevant. Because that relationship that existed upon earth no longer exists after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those natural ties are broken, and what you have is this spiritual relationship. James says, I'm just like any other Christian. I serve God, and I serve the Lord. Jesus Christ. Now, there are times in the Bible where Jesus is described by that name, just Jesus. Often when you read the word Jesus with no Lord or Christ beside it, it is for a particular reason. It's to emphasize his manhood and it is to draw attention to his life here upon earth as a man. So he bears the name of Jesus. But remember, that's not the relationship that we have with him. He has risen and ascended. He is our Lord Jesus. We are his bond servants. He is our Lord. And our kind of default reference to the Lord Jesus ought to, I think, bear that out. Without being hard and fast about it, it's good to refer to him as our Lord Jesus rather than just Jesus. And perhaps the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing in verse 1 of chapter 1 to Christians with a Jewish background. And he describes them in this way to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Greeting. So he's writing to people, that expression, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, would draw attention to their Jewish heritage. 
So it's Christians with a Jewish background. In other words, it's people of the same background that he had. So he understood their life because they were just the same as him. They had had the cultural challenges that he had had after a result of becoming a Christian. So he could identify with them. He calls them my brethren in verse 2. So there is that cultural identity, but there's also the spiritual identification as well as brothers in Christ, in the family of God. So he writes this letter, he's writing to Christians with that background, which is important. Because when you read the epistle, he's going to speak about trials and temptations. And there were no group of Christians at that time who were under more pressure than Christians with a Jewish cultural heritage because they were being persecuted by the Roman authorities and they were also being rejected by their own culture and their own people. So it was coming from both sides. So when he writes to them, he writes with that familiarity to their circumstance. Now, in verse number two, he begins by speaking about trials. Now, I'm reading from the King James most of you are probably reading from another version of the Bible, whether the ESV, the NIV, or something like that. And it may well be that there are different words used for trials and temptations throughout this epistle. When the authorised the King used in your translation of the Bible. So he says, counted all joy to divers, that is, various trials. So there's the subject as he begins this little section. So he's going to speak about their attitude towards their circumstances. It's all about attitude. He's not going to speak about changing the circumstances, but he is going to speak about changing their attitude in the circumstances. And so he will expand this as we go down through these 11 verses. Now, we may wonder how this kind of letter would be received. I mean, this is the sort of letter that on the surface can be quite patronising, can be quite annoying. If someone tells you what your attitude ought to be like while you're going through a hard time, that can be unhelpful sometimes. So, for example, perhaps you're going through a difficult time in some relationship or with some issue in your life, and perhaps you're even thinking about it at the moment, and someone draws alongside with the best of intentions and tells you how you ought to think about those circumstances or tells you what your attitude ought to be like in a corrective way. That's not always helpful. So James isn't just going to say to them, listen, you ought to be X, Y, Z, because I'm telling you. He's going to bring his instruction to them in a completely different basis. So we'll see that as we, go, as we go down. He's going to explain the significance of what they're going through, the reason why they're going through it, and also how it is that they can look at these circumstances and see them in a positive spiritual light. So it's not just a blanket type of patronising, be happier or, come on, you should you know, be in a better mood about this sort of thing. He's not diminishing the circumstances one little bit. So he says this, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now he's not alone in speaking about our attitude and trials. I noted down this in 1 Peter 4 verse 13. 
to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So Peter's speaking about the attitude of the Christians during their suffering. Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 says this, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. So he has a similar type of approach. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say unto you, rejoice. So it's a common theme in the New Testament that the adjustable factor is not the circumstance, because that's under the control of God and his sovereign purposes. The controllable factor in life is our attitude in the circumstance and how we view the circumstance. That's the only thing over which we have control. Because usually when we enter into trials, we have no control over these things. They're out with our ability to alter often or anyone's ability to alter. So when we come to the New Testament, I think there's a, a, a substantial degree of reality about that approach that we understand. That we understand that the variable is us and our demeanour, thinking, spiritual condition as opposed to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So various trials, what's he talking about? Well, he's not emphasising the number of trials that you may come into or find yourself in. He's talking about the variety of trials that exist. It's not that we all experience the same trial in life. We don't. They didn't in the Bible. For example, when you look at Abraham, you remember Abraham's great trial of faith was with his son Isaac. And he was tested at the heart of his affection. And God tested his affection by saying to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That was the key. Don't just take any of your children. Take that child Isaac. Don't take any other relative and take him up the mountain and basically sacrifice him. That was the test. But that was a test specific to Abraham. It was an extreme test. You think about Job. Job also is an example of testing, but he was tested in different ways. He lost his business, he lost his health, and he lost his family. He just about lost everything. And that was different from Abraham. You remember David, and David, as a young man, goes up to battle in faith. He fights the giant, he defeats the giant, and then he goes into a cycle of testing at the hands of the king, which you would never anticipate because he just bailed the king out. So the king didn't have to go and fight Goliath. He went and fought him, but then he becomes a refugee, hunted across the mountains of Judea by Saul the king. So that was a completely different type of test than Job had or Abraham had. Paul, when he writes about his experience, he speaks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And his testing, it may well have been his eyesight, the speculation about that, or some other issue, some health issue that caused him difficulties. And he had to bear the burden of that. And the only answer he got from God was, my grace is sufficient for you. The circumstance is not going to change, Paul. But I am going to pour my grace into you as you go through that circumstance. That my will might be accomplished in your life. Various trials. Now that's important because quite often when we think about trials, we think about 
circumstances and we identify those circumstances with an individual or we say you know that person's lost their job or that person has a health issue or that person has a relationship issue or that person's family is broken or something like this and very often it never ever dawns on us that we'll be called to go through a trial so we tend to look at other people and identify specific trials with individuals that we know are going through them and often just sail quite plainly until the trial comes to us. So James is saying, I want you to understand this, that trials are not just for other people. There's an inevitability about trial that we're going to see in all our lives, but it's not the same trial. That's the point. There's a variety of trials. So he says about that variety, he says, count it all joy when you fall into the variety of trials. Count it all joy. Now, I like the fact that that expression is an almost sterile expression, separated from an emotive reaction. So he is not speaking about our emotive response, our natural response to the pressure or trial that we may experience. He's not speaking about that. He's speaking about the calculation that you are able to make about that trial as you think about it. And that's probably not in the very beginning or the kind of in the immediacy of the circumstances. So he's saying regarding something based on weighing and comparing the facts. So uh, Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon says this, it denotes deliberate and careful judgment stemming from external proof, not subjective judgment based on feelings. Because there is no one, I know, there is no one who goes into a period of trial thinking that this is anything other than terrible. There is no one that goes into a period of trial who doesn't feel under the pressure or doesn't feel the strain or doesn't feel the anxiety or doesn't feel all of the things that come emotively and subjectively as you experience these things. James isn't saying you mustn't ever experience these things. He's not saying it's wrong to experience these things. He says there's something else apart from that. There is an objective looking at that and one writer said, once the emotions have subsided a little bit, we are then able to think about the trial from a godly biblical perspective. And that's what James is speaking about. So he says, count it all joy. That doesn't mean that everyone goes into a period of trial with a big grin in their face or feels guilty about how they feel but he's speaking about something different from that. So count it all joy when you fall into variety of trials. Now, that expression, when you fall, really speaks about the character of what a trial is because it's the same expression that appears in the story of the Good Samaritan. So if you think about the story of the Good Samaritan, you have an illustration of what a trial is. Because here's a man who sets out and Jerusalem to Jericho is on, on his road and he starts the day without a care in the world. 
and he begins the journey, he does nothing to merit what happens to him. He doesn't ask for it, he doesn't deserve it in that sense any more than anyone else. It just so happens to be him on that day going down that road and the Bible says he falls among thieves. That's the same expression, to fall among. So he is assaulted from outside of himself. That's a trial. It's not something that comes from within, something that comes from without. He's assaulted from outside. Effect of the James, he's only now there's the trial. So when you think about this expression trial, and there are many things can do that to us as Christians. It can be a phone call, it can be a meeting at work, it can be a visit from someone, it can be any number of things that change not just your day, but change the days that lie ahead. So all of a sudden, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho didn't matter anymore. Nothing mattered apart from him surviving the trial. So when you fall, is that expression. And he says, count it all joy. Now just think about it. The man lying at the side of the road, half dead. I know it's a story, but it's an illustration. He's hardly pleased about his circumstances. He would have been miserable in pain and all the rest of it, completely dependent upon the help of others. So he's not talking about the subjective feeling of how you are towards your circumstances, but rather this, he says, count it all joy. Now, how is that even possible? Because it's not something that is simplistic or natural. How is that, how is that possible? Well, first of all, James does not say, count it all joy if you fall into a variety of trials. The word if is not there, it's the word when. So there is an inevitability about this experience for a Christian. It's not, as one writer said, an elective in the course of life. You can't say, well, do you know what, I'm going to choose to have a trial today. Or I'm going to exclude trials from my life. I don't fancy it. It's not within our remit. It's something that God allows in our life. And God uses trials to test our faith. And there are a variety of trials. We do not understand why he sends particular trials or allows particular trials. We simply often don't know why he has done that, why he has allowed that, when he has allowed it. That information usually is not available to us in the trial. So you're in the trial blind in that sense. And that makes it all the more difficult. One writer said, many Christians naively think that if they obey the Lord, then they will be spared from trial. I think most of us think that way. Like bad things happen to bad people. Bad things shouldn't happen to good Christians. The writer says, when trials hit us, as a consequence, we are confused and often angry at God, basically saying, what are you playing at? I was following you. I was doing the best I could. Why have you allowed this to happen? That kind of reaction against God. So first of all, trials, and this is why I'm saying that if you're not in a trial today, adjust your thinking about them, because you will be in a trial at some point in your life. Every single one of us. 
Then the second thing is this, that trials can be sudden. Think about that story of the Good Samaritan. So things change very quickly. Thirdly, trials bring pain. Right throughout the Bible. You think about Mary, who lost her brother Lazarus. And the Lord Jesus draws near to her in her grief and never once chastises her or condemns her for her grief, not once. You see, the Lord Jesus drew near to her during her trial. Did diminish the trial, did belittle the trial, did try to uh, say it wasn't as bad as it was, just drew near during the trial and his presence was the comfort for her through the trial. When the Lord Jesus faced his own trial, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the difference was he knew what was coming. He knew all the physical violence that he was about. God utterly alone to face the most extreme trial that any man's ever faced. And it's no wonder then that Hebrews 5 verse 7 says that he faced that in the garden with strong crying and tears. The Lord Jesus was weeping as he faced the cross. So when you think about that and you think about trials, what I'm trying to impress upon us is just this, that our natural emotive response to those trials is actually the same type of response that you get from people in the Bible. It isn't that it's a failure. The Lord Jesus, strong crying and tears. Why do you think it is that Paul says in Romans 12 verse 15 to the Christians, Rejoice with those that rejoice, but do not forget to weep with those that weep. So don't go alongside and say, stop crying. Stop weeping. Cheer up. Get alongside, he says. And when someone is going through an extreme trial or going through difficulties in their life, just get alongside and weep with those that weep. So trials bring pain. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it's spoken of as discipline. And it says this, that the discipline of the Lord during the moment seems not to be joyful, but sort of. So James is not saying put on your happy face and be in denial about your experience. So how then are you able to put into practice verse 2? Well, if you the keep to this and it's knowledge it's not feeling it's not emotion it's knowledge so he says knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience so he says i want to tell you something i want you to know something and as you think about this experience then you have to think about it with this knowledge in order to be able to make that calculation in verse 2, to come to this conclusion. So what is the essential knowledge? Well, number one, the knowledge, first of all, is that God is sovereign in our lives and sovereign over every trial. 
God uses trials for his purpose in our lives. So it's not that God sits in heaven and says, you know what, I didn't think that was a very good thing to happen, but now it's happened, I'll use it for his benefit. It's not that God is responsive. God is not responsive to anything. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's in control of everything. He has ordained all the days of our life before we were even born. Psalm 139, verse 16, one translation puts it this way, speaking to the Lord, Your eyes saw my unformed substance before I was even formed in the womb. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The psalmist says, my whole life is known by the Lord before it even begins. Every single day has been written down, and God is in control of the whole thing. So we are not lost in a sea of random um, happenings. Life isn't floating down a river with sometimes you come across, you know, rapids or whatever, which are rocky, you know, a terrible time, then you get flat cams, and it's all just random. Rather, when you look at these scriptures, Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. He orders our steps. So the first thing is to understand this, that life is not random, but God is sovereign. Secondly, God uses trials to produce something in my life that otherwise would never be produced. So he tests us. The trying of your faith, the testing of your faith. So when you're in a, in a trial, that trial is a test. Now, it's not a test like an exam. It's the sort of testing like the refining of a metal. And it is to produce a better product at the end of the process. So the metal is put into the testing process, the refining process, and when it comes out of that process, it is of infinitely more value than when it went in. But it has to go through the fire. And it's the fire that produces the refining of the faith. How often have we said this at Bible class? That you and I rarely do well when life is good. Our reading patterns, our prayer patterns fall off. Our um, devotion and thoughts even about the Lord diminish compared to when times aren't, are difficult. When times are difficult, you find yourself reading the Bible more and praying more and you find yourself thinking about God more. That's what happens. If it doesn't happen to you, well, that's good. But it happens to me, as I'm sure it happens to most of you. And the Lord knows that about us. And if he just gave us a life that was absolutely perfect with no pain and no sorrow and no health issues and no relationship problems and no business issues or employment issues or financial strain or anything like that, we would sail through life. And there wouldn't be hardly any change to it. We would be hardly more Christ-like at the end of life than the beginning. Because character is formed in the fire as opposed to when everything's fine. God tests us. And it says here that the testing of your faith produces, it works, it's productive, it's for a purpose, it's not meaningless. I remember saying it, Shannon and Elaine's aunt, Morris' funeral, talking about this sort of thing. 
And one of the great things about um, a Christian and the life they have, which sometimes is cut short or whatever, that, and perhaps some Christians go through quite a lot of suffering, that for the Christian, that's not meaningless. That just doesn't just disappear into the nether. It actually has spiritual and eternal significance. And when someone goes through experiences like that, as a Christian, there are things being done, there is value being produced, which is eternal, not just for time. There are experiences that draw you closer to God and that will cause you to be closer to God than you would ever be if you didn't go through these experiences. And that is not just for time, that's for eternity. That's the big picture. So he's saying the trying of your faith produces spiritual qualities. Trench in his synonyms means, uh, defines this word endurance or patience as to stand fast or persevere. Says that the Greek word translated patience is used with respect to persons, whereas endurance refers to things. Thus the man is patient who is not easily provoked or angered by difficult people, whereas the man who endures does not lose heart during trials. We might call it spiritual toughness. Endurance. Let me just give you the example. Okay, I don't feel very much like an athlete tonight, but um, suppose you think of an athlete, and the athlete has a race coming up. Say it's a 10K. So he trains for the race. Maybe make it a marathon, because you might get around a 10K without doing much training, but make it a marathon then. Now, everyone in this room, I don't see any marathon runners, apart from Wallace, in this room, every marathon runner, including Wallace, has to train. So you can't just roll off the couch and run a marathon. Well, you might, but it'll take you about three days. You're not going to be able to do it. So the endurance required to complete that task requires you to train, and that training is gradual. So, for example, they'll get the time when you can do a 5K, then a 10K, and then you'll be able to do a half marathon, and then your body will begin adjusted physically, and you'll be building up endurance so that you can take on the harder task, and then you'll build up a bit of endurance, and then you can take on, until finally you'll be able to run the marathon, but you'll probably train, and then train to an extent that you could do more than a marathon. Excuse the reference, Wallace, but I remember Wallace saying that after marathon, I think it was down in the Lake District, that he was so such a highly tuned athlete that he could have run the thing twice, which I think he probably could have run the thing twice. But you see, training for not just staggering over the line, but actually finishing the race strongly. But if you take that concept into the spiritual sphere, that's what God does to us. Like he doesn't chuck us in at the deep end. He brings us into life experiences gradually, never more than we can bear Never more than we can handle. But he's pushing us. He's just pushing us. He's stretching us. He's developing us, not physically, but spiritually. Now you ask anyone who trains physically about the pain that's involved in pushing yourself beyond what you can do to the next level. Well, you think about it in the spiritual sphere. God takes us out of our comfort zone that he might develop spiritual qualities that otherwise would never be created within us. So one of these qualities is endurance. To be able to go on, to survive, to last, to get through. 
And when you go through the small, you'll be able to go through the bigger. You won't collapse as a Christian when the big things happen. How do you think it is when someone stands? I mentioned Aunt Moira and thinking about Uncle Sandy. When he was able to stand there in the midst of a, of a terrible situation and shine as a Christian. Like, I mean, if that just happened to someone... As an, it's unlikely that you could build up to that sort of endurance just overnight. But the Lord takes us through things that we might cope with the, the huge things that come in life and not collapse. So then he says, this is a process and the process is productive. But then look at verse 4. In order for it to be productive, we need to engage with it. Because you and I both know many people who have been brought into spiritual trials and they've been destroyed in them. They've fallen. They've gone backwards spiritually. They haven't been able or willing to get through the trial. They've run out the first exit. And as a consequence, the trial has not had its effect that God would have in their life. So in verse 4, the but of contrast is just this. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. So we should, in order for the process to be productive, it requires submission. These are all difficult things I'm speaking about, I know that. But this is the knowledge that James wants us to have. He's not soft soap in this. He's giving it to us as it is. And those who've been through very difficult experiences often don't want just to hear platitudes and empty words, but want to know concrete truth that they can base and cling on to and it can be foundational. Something substantive. That's what James is saying. He's saying, listen... Here is the knowledge. Here is the let is the idea of submission to God in the trial. Let patience. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean passively endure without praying for relief. That's not the idea. Paul prayed that the thorn in the flesh should be removed. So when someone has a health issue, we pray for recovery. We pray for the treatment. We rightly pray for, for that experience to end and to end in the best way we can imagine, someone is out of work, what do you do? You pray that they might get back into work. Someone has a relationship issue and their hearts are broken, you pray that their heart might be healed. Someone in their family is a very difficult... You're praying for a, an outcome, a positive outcome. You don't be passive in the circumstance. So you see that in different examples in Scripture. And being submissive to God does not either necessarily mean that you don't take steps to remedy the problem. For example, if you've lost the job, you don't just sit passively and say, well, I've lost the job in the midst of a trial and do nothing. You try to get another job. You, you, you try to, to change that circumstance positively and endure it. If the trial's an illness, you take the medication. If you're in a difficult circumstance, you do look for the change of that circumstance Submission is not passive. Submission is to do with attitude during the trial. Let me, probably one of the easier ones is to do with employment. When you think about employment, 
and you've maybe not got a job yet or you don't know and you're, you're applying for these jobs it is your attitude during that process before God opens the way out of that process that's the key that he's talking about that's the sort of area he's speaking about it's, it's during treatment it's during um, mediation and relationship it's, it's during the process that's the trial so he says this Submit, let patience have our perfect work. Let the process produce. Let the refining work in order that you may be perfect. That means mature and complete. So the process is seeking to make you a better Christian, a more rounded Christian, a more mature Christian, to develop characteristics that you have so that they might be better and also to produce characteristics that you don't have. Dismiss it. So some of us have Christ-likeness, but we could be better. But we ought to have them, so they need to be produced in our life, as well as refined. So, verse 4. But then, you see, it begs a question to me as you read down this passage, and there's a flow of thought down the passage. And it's just this, hindsight's a great thing. So that when you look back in an experience of life, you can, you know, you can see the hand of the Lord, you can identify different things and reflect upon them and come to a conclusion about them. But that's with hindsight. James is not talking about after the trial. He's talking about during the trial. So it may well be that you are in a situation, and you certainly will be in life, where you simply don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. So you're in a difficulty and there's no apparent answer. There's no simple solution. You're struggling. That's more common than someone who knows the answer and who's just having a hard time putting it into practice. Because very often, going into a trial is like walking into a tunnel and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There's not even a pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel. It's just what it is. Well, if that be the case, I think that's why verse 5 follows verse 4. Because it may well be up until now you're just saying, you know what, that's, I, I can't do that. I just can't do that. I can see the kind of logic of it. But as I'm applying it to my own life, it may well be you're thinking, I can't do that. So in verse 5 he says, if any of you lack wisdom. Now wisdom is not knowledge. So the knowledge is verse 1 to 4. But wisdom is the application of knowledge to your circumstance. That's wisdom. So people can have lots and lots of knowledge but lack wisdom. So they don't have the ability or they don't have the wherewithal to take what they know and actually bring it into their life circumstance and apply it. That's wisdom. So you can get to the end of verse 4 and say, look, I know all the theory, but I'm sitting here thinking about my circumstances and theory is one thing, but I just can't see how am I going to apply that to my circumstances. Well, if that be the case, you're in verse 5. So he says, if any 
lack wisdom. Let them ask of God. That word ask is the idea of continually ask. Let them ask of God that gives to all liberally and abrades not and it shall be given him. So then, when you lack wisdom, and I was looking at this idea of wisdom. It's interesting where wisdom comes from in the Old Testament, the context in which it's used, the word is used. It's used, for example, of the skill of workers who made garments for the high priest, who were able to, to work with metal, wood, and stone. That was described as wisdom. So they were able to take raw materials and fashion something out of them. Wisdom. It also extended in Isaiah 10, verse 13, of someone who could execute a battle plan so that they were given a battle plan. This is what we are going to do. The wisdom was to take the battle plan and put it into practice. So you take raw materials and you fashion something. That's wisdom. You take a plan and you execute the plan. That's wisdom. It's also in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, speaks about the, the requirement of those in government to govern. They need Wisdom, which is to take all the eventualities round about them and guide a nation through those eventualities and circumstances. Wisdom. It is also in 2 Samuel 20 used of assessing a difficult situation and persuading others down a particular course of action. That's required wisdom. So you assess the situation and you give appropriate advice. That requires wisdom. So you're building a whole picture up from the Old Testament of those ideas and concepts and you bring that, for example, Psalm 37 verse 30, it also refers to those who speak prudently. Psalm 90 verse 12, those who use their time carefully. And you can do a word study in that. And those these things, bring them all together. Because these are all aspects when you bring to the spiritual realm of what wisdom actually is. So it's taking your life circumstances and your knowledge from the Bible, so you can look at that like the raw material or the plan and all that knowledge and actually bring it to bear upon your circumstances. That's wisdom. That's where we have a problem because you get the knowledge through reading the Bible. Where do you get the wisdom from? Where do you get the wisdom from? I mean, the wisdom isn't, the wisdom isn't on the pages of the Bible so much as the knowledge. So the wisdom comes from God through prayer. Let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, and God will give you the help to take what you know and to put it into practice in your circumstances, to give you maybe the courage or to give you the sensitivity or to, to give you the insight or to give you whatever to take what you know and to live it. You know, when things are going well, you hardly need wisdom in that sense. But when the tunnel is dark and when the light is not at the end of the tunnel, to know which way to go, to know what to do, to know what decision to take, when you've two decisions and either are good and you don't know which one to take. So if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's in the present tense. You probably will need to ask more than once. Continually ask. No magic formula. No special incantation. No form of words that you mutter and some mystical thing happens. P 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4 that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true, here's the word, knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent exceeding great promises. Paul assures us in Ephesians 3 verse 12 that in Christ we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So when we need wisdom to endure, how do we get it? We pray. We pray. And we're not seeking some divine uh, revelation in the sense of some um, type of dream or something mystical like that. What we are asking God to do is what we have read from the Bible, give me help to put that into practice in my life. That's it. It's as practical as that. What I know I should do, what I know you're doing, what I know, theoretically I know, not seeking more knowledge. I'm seeking God's help to put that into practice and to live that. And that's wisdom. And that just comes from God. It doesn't come from anywhere else. You don't get that anywhere else. You don't get that sitting at a desk, you don't get that walking down the street, you get that on your knees before God. That's where it comes. And that's the only source for them. And you know what we do when we don't get that wisdom? We apply man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And that's where Satan comes in. And that's where the doubts and the anxieties and the fears get exacerbated and get magnified and that's the terrors of the night and that's all of that sort of stuff that's not from God that is the wisdom of man as you are thinking things through from an earthly human perspective with human anxiety and all that kind of stuff and it just that's where the whole thing begins to break down James says no listen pray for wisdom pray for wisdom and in verse 6 I'm not going to finish this tonight, but we'll, we'll finish most of it. In verse number six, there's another, um, there's the, the, but let him, but let him. So here's the qualifier of verse five, just like verse four is the qualifier of verse three. But let him ask, here's the conditional statement. Let him ask in faith. All comes down to faith. Trusting God. <coughs> Not trusting God to change the circumstance because he might, but he might not. Let him ask nothing wavering. And I think it's a very apt description in verse number six. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And I've got this image in my mind of someone who's standing on a rock, like a lighthouse type idea, and the waves are battering around him. But he's not being moved by them because he's standing on a rock. It's not, you know, if the waves hit him, they would destroy him. He would be tossed all over the place. He's not stronger than the waves. It's not that that gives him stability. It is what he's standing on that gives us stability. And when you think about the word of God, the knowledge that God gives us, the, the prayer and so on, he's talking about that foundation. That's the stability. 
So the storm is going to rage. But it's whether or not you're being tossed about. He says, trust God. Stand on that foundation. You will not be driven with the wind and tossed. Verse 7, he's quite, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a, a, a direct statement in verse 7. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Faith is the key. And he expands this in verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I won't go for I'll start off in verse 9 next week. Because he's speaking about the change in life circumstances and our ability to process them. So someone that's poor is perhaps made rich. Someone that's rich is perhaps made poor. And trials can change our life circumstances dramatically. And it's how we cope with these change of life circumstances. But when you come back to this basic, just this idea, this idea. And here it is in James chapter 1. And we said at the beginning that this is a very practical. And you can see just how practical this is. He's connecting with the reality of our life. And he's speaking about the real things of life. Not the theory, not the, the chat and all that kind of stuff. He's talking about the more serious things. And he has said, count it all joy. And there's a tough, there's a tough statement. Make an assessment if you can, with God's help. Applying the wisdom he gives from the knowledge that he provides that actually man's wisdom says this is an absolute nightmare. Without anything good or productive, it's awful. Scripture says, yes, it is awful. But actually, as you go through that experience, you're going to come out of that experience in a way that you did not go into. And so many have testified of that uh, throughout the years. Um, and the kind of scary thing is this, that so many of us, so many of us, just don't think it'll ever be us. I'll never lose my job. You know, my family will never break up. You know, my health will never break down. You know, I'll never, I'll never have serious life issues to deal with. Can't, we don't anticipate them. And yet James says this, when you fall into a variety of trials. Let's just pray.